Well, allow me to uh, again welcome you all as we are continuing in this series that we are calling Letters for Exiles, in which we're looking at that letter of 1 Peter. We'll also be looking at 2 Peter in just a couple of weeks. Reason why is because Peter was writing to churches in the midst of turmoil. Uh, These were several churches in Asia Minor where uh, there had been some persecution that started to break out. And while it wasn't systematic nor widespread, it was starting. And likewise, living in the ancient world, tomorrow was always an uncertain thing. And so in the midst of that anxiety and uncertainty where all that's familiar seems to be changing and where these Christians in particular just really felt like they were at odds with the wider world around them, he wrote these letters in order to encourage them, to help them understand what it, mean, what it means to be people who bring peace and joy and hope into the places and spaces where God had sent them. And that's why we're, we're studying it together is because likewise, in our world today, a lot seems very uncertain. We feel like outsiders, or we feel like that what was once familiar is just kind of falling apart. And that doesn't, doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not a Christian. We all kind of feel that kind of anxiety and uncertainty in our world. And so these letters really are letters that, that address us as well. And uh, last week, what we saw is that uh, just as we are a holy people, we are called to a holy calling. And that is to bring the presence of God into the world. Uh, At a time uh, where people often, when when things are uncertain, we tend to want to huddle up or to lash out. Peter says, neither one of those are options for you. Your calling is to bring the gracious presence of God wherever he has sent you. But that raises a question, and the question is, but how do we do that? Like practically, what does that mean? And that's exactly what Peter is going to be getting into in our passage for this morning. But I think it's only right that before we uh, dive into God's word, we allow him to prepare our hearts and our minds to receive the message that he has for us. So would you please bow your heads and pray together with me? Lord God, we give you thanks that you have indeed called us together into this place, not only to remind us of who you are and who we're called to be, but to empower us for that holy calling. And so we pray, Lord, as we come before your word today, that you would open our hearts and our minds to receive the message that you have for us. And God, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So if you've got your Bibles, I want to encourage you to go ahead and open up with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. Likewise, if you've got that scripture journal that we've been handing out, uh, we're on page 12 uh, in that scripture journal. And, uh, and really what we see in 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 13, all the way to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, is Peter addresses three key institutions in his day and talks about what it looks like to live out our holy calling in those places. And the three institutions that he's addressing are government, the economy, and the household. Government, the economy, and the household. Now I'll pause there to let your heart rate come down. Because I feel like the conversations that we have in our culture today around government, economy, and household are often come with a whole lot of anxiety and frustration. And it was the same back then. Uh, Times don't change all that much in many respects. But these are the three things that he addresses. And, And what's important to understand is that in the ancient world, they didn't think about these as institutions. They thought about these in terms of relationships, Specifically, relationships between citizens and the emperor, 
Relationships between slaves and masters and relationships between wives and husbands. And the reason why this is important is because the, the ancient people, this is how they thought about how society was meant to be ordered. These were the three pillars of order in society. And it's important to acknowledge that in all three of them, they had something in common, and that was that there was a power differential. In all three of them, there was a power differential. These three pillars touched every aspect of human life. They affected everything about how you lived, but every single one of them brought with them a power differential. Let's, let's break it down for just a second. When it came to government, you didn't get a vote, okay? There was the emperor, there were the governors that he appointed, and then there's everybody else. And they were the ones who ran the show. This was an absolute dictatorship. Yes, there was a senate, but really they were just kind of there to rubber stamp or try to assassinate the emperor. That was their job, uh, essentially, in the ancient world. But it's because the emperor reigned supreme. His governors were appointed by him. You didn't have a choice. Major power differential. Likewise, when it came to the economy, it was really structured around this kind of master's servants, masters and slaves uh, economy. Now, here's where we have to do some important cultural unpacking for just a moment. When they talk about slavery in the ancient world, they're not talking about the race-based slavery that has been such a blight on the Western world um, up to you know, recent times. They're not talking about the system of slavery that we had in this country before our founding and even in the years afterwards. Slavery was different. Anybody could be a slave in the ancient world. And you could be a slave because your people were conquered in warfare and you were taken as a slave. You could be a slave because you failed to pay off your debts, and so you suddenly find yourself forced into an indentured servitude to pay it off. Or likewise, you could choose to enter into slavery if you weren't able to make ends meet. You could basically give yourself to a master, and that's how you would be protected and provided for as you worked for them. And it's also important to note that slaves in the ancient world were actually able to do quite a lot. They could pursue um, continuing education. They could own property. Uh, they could run businesses. They could even serve in positions of government. So it's just not the same kind of structure. But at the end of the day, the master's word reigned supreme. Slaves could do all of these things, but at the end of the day, if their master didn't like it, their master got to do whatever the master chose. And so many commentators have actually noted that uh, this ancient institution of slavery, this economic system, very similar to actually our workplace system today. Anybody have a boss who's a taskmaster? If you're on staff with Trinity, please don't raise your hands. <laughs> no, but let's think about it for a second. Yeah, you can make a paycheck. You can take it home. You can even have positions. You could be middle management and stuff like that. End of the day, boss reigns supreme, right? Power differential. And yes, in the ancient world, that could be abused. Last but not least, the household. And in the household, there was one person who ran the show, and that was the head of the household who was the patriarch, the husband. He was the master of the household. Now everybody else served at his pleasure, including his wife. And again, wives could, could do quite a lot. They could you know, run households, they could manage money and things like that, but at the end of the day, their husband's word was ultimate. 
which is why women depended on their husbands and then their sons to provide for them. Because that's how inheritance was passed down. That's how power was exercised within the household. And here's why this was so important for Peter to address. The Christians that he's writing to were asking a question. And that was, how do we live as Christians when those in power over us are pagans? How do we live as Christians when those in power over us are pagans? When they don't share our same religious views, they don't share our same moral values, they just don't share these things. What do we do? And Peter says the same thing to all three. The exact same thing. He says, be subject to them. Chapter 2, verse 13, be subject to the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Be subject, be subject, be subject. Now, this is something that we as Americans have a massive problem with, because what are we celebrating tomorrow? We're not subjects of anyone! America! We're free. We're free. We can do whatever we want. We can even take vowels out of the name of our own country. This is right. We, just, we don't have to bow the knee to anybody. We struggle with this idea of being subject to people. We just don't get it. We don't understand. And so the question is, why would Peter say this? Is it simply a matter of, of he's just trapped by his cultural circumstances? What's really going on here? Which is why I, I do think it's helpful uh, to, to always, you know, really dive in and understand the text. Um, and, and here especially, I want to highlight something that one of the commentators uh, drew out when talking about this idea of submission. Jim Samra in his uh, commentary on First and Second Peter writes this. He says, submission is, a si is situation specific. In general, it means to acknowledge the authority of another and follow their leadership. But a slave submitting to a master looks different from a citizen submitting to governing authorities, which looks different from a wife submitting to a husband. So we need to understand what that actually looks like, what Peter is saying about submission and how that applies to us today. So let's go ahead and look at the shape of our submission for just a second. What does it actually mean to be subject? And, and let's start with the government and governing authorities. Here's what Peter says about the government. He says, be subject to the Lord's say, uh, for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. Now, right here, Peter actually gives us a clue as to what it looks like for us to be subject to those in governing authority. He actually says that government has a God-ordained purpose. Government has a God-ordained purpose. The God-ordained purpose that God has that it entrusted to human authorities and human governments is simply this, to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. To bring justice and order to society. To restrain evil and to promote the good for their citizens and their people. That's the role government is supposed to play. And what Peter is saying is he's saying our job as citizens, not just of the country we're in, but citizens of the kingdom of God, is to support the governing authorities toward that end. That's what we're supposed to do. We are supposed to encourage and serve them as they seek to do justice for everybody. 
And to really help us unpack this, I actually want to go to a, a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Now, here's the reason I love Bonhoeffer when it comes to talking about church and politics. When he was growing up, he actually lived under three different forms of government. When he was a child, they lived under a monarchy, which fell at the end of World War I. As a teenager and he was growing up, he lived under the Weimar Republic, which was a democracy, which fell apart. And then as a young man, he lived under the Nazi Party, which is this kind of totalitarian dictatorship. Uh, built all around German nationalism. He saw three forms of government in his very short lifetime. He saw the good and the, ba the bad and the ugly of all three, and he also saw how the church sold out to every single one of them, which is why I think he's one of the best people to help us understand what this looks like. Here's what he says. He says that the church has the task of summoning the whole world to submit to the dominion of Jesus Christ. She testifies before government to their common master. She knows that it is in obedience to Jesus Christ that the commission of government is properly executed. Her aim is not that government should pursue a Christian policy, enact Christian laws, etc., but that it should be true government in accordance with its own special task. Only the church brings government to an understanding of itself. Now, let me unpack that for just a moment. When he says that, because we read that and we're just like, well, what do you mean you're not supposed to enact Christian laws and Christian policies? What he's saying is he's saying the church isn't a special interest group. The church doesn't come to government and say, you need to pass laws that protect us and our rights and our freedoms. He says, that's not the, that's not the role of the church. The church's job is to hold government accountable to pursuing the good for everybody, not just ourselves to pursue justice for everyone, not just our own community. Because that's the reason God instituted governments. And that is our duty and our calling. That was the problem that Bonhoeffer saw. The church got in bed with the Nazis because they were just like, well, the Nazis promised to protect us and watch out for us. It doesn't matter what they do to the Jews or to the disabled or to communists or people they don't politically like. That doesn't matter because they're protecting us and our rights and our interests. And Bonhoeffer says, no, that is a betrayal of our calling. If we are to be subject to governing authorities, we are to be subject in a way that reminds them of their calling to do justice for everybody. That's actually part of the reason that undergirded why he himself resisted his own government. As he said, it's not because I think government is wrong. What I'm saying is that they're, 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 they've betrayed their God-given calling. And our duty as Christians is to remind them of that and point them back to that because through that, God ensures that justice comes to all people and good is done to all citizens. And as Christians, that's how we serve those in governing authority. It's saying you actually do have a God-given purpose. And it's to ensure justice and good for everybody. And we speak up not just on our own behalf, we speak up on behalf of those who can't speak up for themselves, the marginalized and the powerless. We serve government in a way that helps them to live out that calling more faithfully and more fully. And the question we have to ask ourselves is when people look at us and our, our participation in politics, what do they actually see? Do they see us simply acting like a special interest group that simply cares about ourselves? Or do they see Christians, regardless of who's in office, serving the common good through their political action? Because that's what we're supposed to do. Serve the common good. Not engage in these kind of party politics. See, the thing is, is 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13 isn't going to teach you who to vote for in November. It's not. 
It's gonna teach you how to live regardless of who's in office. It's gonna teach you how to live regardless of who's in office. To say, I understand the purpose of government. I'm gonna serve that end with everything that I have. Let's talk about the economy for a second. He says we're supposed to be subject there too. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Now, again, we listen to that and we're just like, wait a second. Is he saying that if we have terrible bosses, we should just like take it? No, not exactly. Twice in that short passage, he says that when you serve them, it's a gracious thing. Like, what? What does that even mean? Well, there's this understanding that we have seen, that the, the theologians have highlighted over and over and over again, that even our work is a way in which God graciously cares for the world. All right? That even in our work, God graciously cares for the world. Martin Luther actually highlighted this when he talked about his own theology of vocation. He was meditating on the Psalms, and he would come across these passages in the Psalms where it says, God is our fortress, or God provides for our needs, you know, by, by giving us grain for food. And he'd read those passages, and he's like, but, but how? How does God actually do that? And he, as he meditated on it, he's just like, well, the way that God defends us as a fortress is through the soldiers who stand on our walls. The ways in which he puts food on our tables through the hands of the farmers who plant the fields and bring in the harvest. The way that he heals us is through the hands of medical professionals who've been given the gift of healing. He said, this is the theology of vocation. God graciously cares for the world through the work that we do. God graciously cares for the world through the work that we do. And I actually love how Roland Bainton, talking about uh, Luther's theology of vocation, put it. He said this, Just as God, Christ, the Virgin Mary, the Prince of the Apostles, and the shepherds labored, even so we must labor in our callings. God has no hands and feet of his own. He must continue his labors through human instruments. The lowlier the task, the better. The milkmaid and the carter of manure are doing a work more pleasing to God than the psalm singing of a Carthusian. Think about that for a second. What would our streets be like if the garbage man didn't pick up the trash? And yet God keeps our communities clean and healthy through their service. He goes on. This is probably my favorite part. He says, Luther never tired of defending those callings for which, uh, which for one reason or another were disparaged. The mother was considered lower than the Virgin Mary, but Luther replied that the mother exhibits the pattern of the love of God, which overcomes sins just as her love overcomes dirty diapers. I love that. He's like, like, look, there is no task too small for God. That even in the smallest tasks, God works and brings good to those in need through our labor through what we do as we work and as we serve. And so when he talks about this, he says, look, when you're serving, it doesn't matter what kind of boss you have. Through your hands, God is doing gracious things to provide for those around you. That when you serve in the workplace, it's not just about bringing home a paycheck for your family, though that's important. It's about how you serve your coworkers how you serve your customers, and yeah, even how you serve your bosses. 
Because through it all, God desires to do gracious and good work. In fact, modern day business experts are starting to pick up on this. I love what Patrick Lencioni says in his book, The Advantage. He says, every organization must contribute in some way to a better world for some group of people, because if it doesn't, it will and should go out of business. When we work, we are called to bring good into the world to do our labor faithfully and well, recognizing that there are other people on the other side of that receiving its fruits. He says, you're called to serve in the workplace. So it doesn't matter if your boss bought himself a mug that calls him the world's greatest boss. Who cares? Doesn't matter. This isn't the office. You're called to lovingly serve and recognize that the fruit of your labor is meant to feed other people. Last but not least, he gets to the household. And here's, uh, here's the other doozy, which we have a hard time with as modern people. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Now, I will be honest. Modern people come across this, even Christians, who come across this and they're like, oh gosh, this is why the Bible is such a backward book. Like, it's just enshrining patriarchy and misogyny. And this is the reason I don't like these passages. Can we just skip that one? And I understand why, okay? Uh, my wife and I were just watching that Netflix documentary, uh, uh, Keep Sweet, which is about the fundamentalist Mormon church. And these guys who use the word of God to basically justify marrying 12-year-olds, and these guys would have like 47 wives. And this is a horrible story. And they used this passage. And so we read that and we're like, can't we just ditch that one? Until we actually look at what Peter is saying through it, you have to read the whole thing. Because Peter does something that totally turns this entire system inside out. Because right after saying this, he talks to husbands. Keep in mind, he's under no cultural compulsion to do that. And yet, he writes this. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Now again, we could read that wrong. We'd be like, oh my gosh, see? Diminishing women, calling them weaker. No, listen, remember the system that we're in. Women didn't have rights. They were weaker. They were vulnerable. They could be taken advantage of by men. Peter is acknowledging that. But then he subverts the whole system by saying, you are not to operate that way. Rather, you are to live well, showing honor to your wives as the weaker vessel in this society, which would take advantage of them. Why? They are heirs with you of the grace of life. He goes all the way back to Genesis 1, where, God, where it says, God made human beings, male and female, in his image after his likeness. Peter goes right back and says, remember that although this society calls them weak, they are co-heirs. They are image bearers just like you, worthy of honor and respect. And when you put the two halves of this passage back together, what he's saying is he's saying in households, husbands and wives are co-laborers together, giving honor and respect to each other, serving and do, seeking to outdo each other in good. And he says, and the reason why is because even if your spouse doesn't believe in God, you through your service to them can point them to Jesus. That's why he says that they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. 
He turns the whole system inside out and he says, that's what it looks like to serve in your marriages. And so the question is, are we outdoing each other and doing good for our spouses? Do we show honor and love to them with everything that we have? Do we recognize that we're co-laborers together? That as Ecclesiastes says, two are better than one. That as God ordained, we're both made in his image. That's the question. Peter says, that's what it looks like to serve in the context of your households. But here's what I love about all three of them. Here's what all three of the serving has in common. In every single one, he says, you need to remember who you ultimately work for. You work for God. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether the emperor is supreme or governors appointed by him. Verse 16, probably the key verse, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Be subject to your masters, for it is a gracious thing. Wives, be subject to your own husbands so that they might come to know the Lord over and over and over again. He says, at the end of the day, you don't work for the government or for your boss or for your spouse. You work for Jesus. And it's his reputation that you want to get the most honor. You serve in a way that reflects him to those around you. That's what Peter is saying. So that when you go out into your world and when you serve, they don't see you. They see the one who is your Lord and your Savior, the one who is truly your master and the overseer of your souls. Do we serve in a way that actually speaks well of Jesus? Whether in the political sphere, the office space, or the home. Are we simply participating in the social media rhetoric and griping back and forth at one another in a way that brings dishonor to the name of Jesus? Are we jerks in the workplace when we don't get the recognition we think we deserve? Do we treat our spouses like doormats? If so, what Peter is saying is he's saying it's all out of step. None of that reflects well on the one that you call your Lord and Savior. Because you're supposed to serve in a way that helps other people see him and his love and his grace. And that's the final point. This is what empowers our serving is it's Jesus himself. That's why at the very center of the passage, he goes right back to the example of Christ. He says, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And then he goes on and says just what that means. He says, Jesus committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He says, you want to know what it means to serve? Look at Jesus because he has served you. To wicked people, Jesus spoke words of grace. He healed sinners. And he laid his life down for the unjust. That on the cross, he looked down and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. This is how far his service was willing to take him. Why? For our good. He says, that's who you serve. You serve the one who served you that way. And, and honestly, when you get that, when you understand that, it sets you free to serve. 
I think part of the reason why we have such a dysfunctional relationship when it comes to government and our workplaces and our marriages is because we think it's government and our bosses and our spouses who are there to meet all of our needs and the deepest longings of our hearts. And if that is the case, then we will always have a dysfunctional relationship because any serving that we do is really self-centered so that when they don't meet those deepest longings of our lives, we get angry and bitter. We start to complain and to, and to, uh, and to lash out and to lash back. And it's all because we're serving out of some selfish need to get something from them. Which is why I love what Peter says. He says, you need to remember, you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. What he's saying is he's saying, your serving is never done out of the sight of Jesus. And if he calls you to serve, it's because he will also go with you as you serve, because he is your shepherd. He is the one who provides for your deepest needs and your deepest longings. And when you understand that everything you long for is already given to you in Jesus, you are set free to serve for their good, not your own. I remember when this was really driven home for me. I was a student at the University of Illinois. And we had this uh, interfaith days of youth service where all these students from different religious communities kind of came together. And then we went out and did these service projects in the neighborhoods around the campus. And then we got back together to talk about what is it in our faith tradition that inspires us to serve other people. And there was like a little paper and it had little snippets of different religious texts from like the Quran and the Bhagavad Gita and all these other writings talking about why we serve. And in that circle, as we were talking, there's this guy next to me and he kind of chimes in. He's like, hey, my name's Mark. I'm an agnostic, um, but I came today because uh, I thought it was really cool that all you religious people are serving together. I mean, most of the time on the news, religious people are fighting. So I thought it was really cool that you guys are all getting together and actually doing some good. But I, I'll be honest, I have a problem. I read through your passages and it says stuff about how like you need to serve in order to become enlightened or you need to serve in order to break out of the cycle of rebirth or you need to serve in order to, be, to get to heaven. And as a non-religious person, that just sounds really selfish to me. And I, as a very young Christian at that point, just kind of chimed in and I said, well, I believe there's nothing that I can do to earn my way into heaven. That's a free gift that Jesus has given me out of his love for me. And so when I serve, it's just my way of saying thank you to God and working for the good of my neighbors. And it's not really about getting anything back. And he kind of thought about that and nodded his head. He's like, that's, that's pretty cool. Can anyone else say that? And the circle was silent. That's what Peter's talking about. When you realize you have everything in Jesus... Serving isn't about you anymore. He provides for the deepest longings of our hearts. He goes with us into every circumstance. We have an inheritance that's imperishable, a calling which is eternal, an identity which is secure. And he says, and now you are free to serve for their good, not your own. And when you get that, you understand that in your serving, you can bring the gracious presence of God into all the places and spaces where he sends you. And another question is, so what if I serve and it doesn't go well? Peter will talk about that next week. Okay, come back next week. But it starts here. Do you understand that we are called to serve? And to serve in a way that brings glory and honor to God and speaks well of him before others so that people might come to know his grace through us as we are his hands and feet in a world 
that so desperately needs the kind of serving that only he can give. And to that end, I want to invite you to join me as we pray together. Lord God, we give you thanks that even though we don't deserve it, you served us out of your love. That we as people often looking to our own needs, you came into this world and gave everything so that we might live. And so Lord, help us to serve out of the overflow of what you've given to us. Help us to be a people who serve in ways that speak well of you and point others to the grace that only you can give. Lord, that is our calling. That's the purpose that you have for us. And so we ask that you as our shepherd would go with us as we seek to serve those around us in a way that points them to you and your grace. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.